0: Robin Eubanks is considered the premier jazz trombonist of his generation. Whether performing with his groups EB3 or Mental Images, or with the critically acclaimed Dave Holland Quintet and Big Band with whom he was an original member, Robin is an artist whose impact on audiences has proven powerful and lasting. Robin has recorded seven albums as a leader featuring his original music. Yamaha marketing manager Kurt Witt recently spent some time catching up with Robin while on tour with the Dave Holland Quintet. We've recorded some podcasts in some unique locations like taxi cabs and cars while driving down the highway. And I, I think this is probably one of the most beautiful locations we've ever recorded in a podcast at. Uh, today I'm with Robin Eubanks, currently on tour with the Dave Holland quintet and uh we're looking at the ocean aren't we robin yep
1: it's very nice it was uh beautiful
0: down in san diego it's yeah, pretty... we're in <laughs> la, la jolla just outside of san diego looking at uh, people doing what are they uh parasailing up there or, or wind
1: yeah surfing Surf, and wind, and surfing surfing do... parasailing planning a park and
0: yeah this this doesn't yeah. suck no it's pretty nice sometimes it's very cool <laughs> You're uh, on tour right now with Dave Holland, and you've been playing with Dave for quite a while, you know, for the better part of 20 years, and now 10 years, pretty regularly. What's that musical partnership been like?
1: Uh, it's been very nice, you know. Obviously, uh, you know, it's been things have um, developed. You know, um, Dave's stature and the band's stature has definitely. Uh, Developed and expanded over the years. I remember back when we were doing tours on U uh, rail passes in Europe and loading the uh, loading and unloading luggage and instruments and drums and stuff through the windows and trying to make the next connection to the next city and the train schedules and and now we travel around and it's. Big luxurious bus with the widescreen DVD players at the back and lounges and bunks and everything, and we travel around, and it's really it's nice when we go to Europe. So you know, and you know, and then the um, notoriety and all the awards and and acknowledgments that the band and some of the individual members have received over the years has been been very nice. And, you know and obviously musically it's been been very been great do you feel like as a player within this group you've grown quite a bit over this time yeah I hope to you know continue to improve and get better so hopefully 10 years from now I'll be able to make the same statement <laughs> but as you know it's always a, a trying to learn and develop and grow so that's hopefully a given the band maintains a pretty Full touring
0: schedule. You, you were in South America recently. You're headed on to Mexico after this stop. In the states, you're just in Seattle. You're off, um, you know, other places the rest of the year. That's that's pretty impressive. Yeah,
1: it's it's uh, it's been that way for like ten years. I remember, um, uh, I think I remember things really started going crazy travel wise for me in like 98 because I was playing with Dave's band and then I got the position at Oberlin in February of 98 and I started working with Elvin Jones band in February of 98 so I was with Oberlin, Dave and Elvin and uh, it was a two year period that uh, the longest I was home in New York was for one block time was two weeks and two years time. So it was a lot a lot of crazy travel. And I've been and it's been pretty consistent like that. Not maybe not to that extent, but it's been definitely been consistent between Oberlin and touring and doing my other things for the last ten years. That's great that you're as as busy as ever and,
0: and out doing all sorts of things. Now the the type of playing you do with this group is is somewhat contrasted by the type of music you're playing with your own group your last uh, recording the uh, EB three group uh, stylistically very different than the playing you're doing with Dave yeah um,
1: the 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 main difference I think would just be that I use the use of a lot of electronics with uh, with the trombone and uh, and in you know in the instrumentation, it's just as a, a, a three-piece band, a bassless group, as opposed to a band led by a bass player. So, you're saying you've had enough bass in your <laughs> band for a while? <laughs> we won't tell Dave that. <laughs> no, it's you know it's just it was a logistics problem and uh, and the opportunity to um, have a group that's smaller and more compact and easier to book and transport and but it, it's had um, some uh, other uh, side benefits which I wasn't even aware of before when I formed the band was just that uh, because it's a trio and and people and different people are supplying bass lines by using keyboards it's uh enable people to um, expand their abilities and do more than they're used to doing in, in, in regular bands. Everybody's at one point or another uh, called on to fulfill the role of like two people so it, it brings a whole nother dimension to the music and, and to the
0: individuals. That's a, a really unique instrumentation with a keyboard player, a drummer and you playing trombone and other things. Did the group form out of, hey here, you know, me and these two other guys that can do some really neat things and the music kinda came from there or did you have this music in your head and this is what I'm gonna need to kinda fulfill this musical vision I have?
1: Yeah, the the latter is mostly uh, because I didn't even know the uh, capabilities of the individuals at first because the original people that were involved, um, just played it was just keyboards who was doubling on the bass lines and the drummer and me playing my trombone and stuff. And the personnel has changed a little bit. and now that Ken with Denard's in there, he's uh, a drummer who can play keyboard bass while he's playing drums at the same time, which opens up a whole lot of possibilities and and uh, I you know, I from playing with different bands and working with sequencers a lot over the years, I knew that keyboard bass could supply what I needed in the bass parts, and the sample sounds are getting really good. And uh, so I knew it was possible to do it, and uh, I just, so I just wanted to try and, and work with a smaller group, and all this, these uh, benefits of, of doing that have. Um, it not surprise to me. <laughs>
0: The recording you did with this group, the EB3, is not just a CD, but also a DVD, which is a real unique way to showcase that this is really what's going on with these musicians. What was it like to put together that whole project with the audio and the video? Oh, it was very different for me
1: because I've, you know, I've produced uh, <coughs> recordings, you know, many recordings before, but uh, to get it to, to add the video component was a whole nother thing and something I had never done in, in terms of professional presentation you know outside of my video podcast <laughs> which is pretty average Irish but um, it's uh, it, it was nice but you know I had it obviously had a team assembled because I don't know what the hell I'm doing so you know between my manager and Asala and, um, and um, Uh, She knew the videographer who did it, Ryan Paternite, and and he had his camera people, so he was taking care of the video, so you just had to um, lead some of the expertise up to the people that were knowledgeable in that discipline, and just take care of what I could take care of. You know, of course, I oversaw the whole thing, and uh, for instance, he would send me a... uh, uh, a rough edit that he had together but and I would say uh, like this but maybe we can change this camera angle and keep, do you have a shot of this guy doing this at this point and things like that and and we had to get the audio together before we did the um, before we could finish the video so he'd know what he was actually cutting to cutting the tape to and um, you know it was Paul, Paul Bagan Was was the audio engineer and and and, um, he um, mastered the project and recorded and he's a sound guy with Dave for the last six seven years I think and uh, so we've been working together a lot with Dave so um, he was very open and did a really good job so it was you know it was a lot of work in terms of coordinating and all these different people and all the schedules and and uh, we rented a uh, rehearsal studio in Manhattan and and put up and invited people to come so we'd have a live audience to perform for and so it was it was different doing, you know, a video and a recording in front of a live audience and you know instead of doing it at a at a gig cuz we we have a lot more control of a lot of the different parameters of the lighting and you know if I wanted to stop and do something again you could do it which You don't necessarily have the option of doing on a live gig, you know. If I messed up something, I say, "Uh oh, we're going to do this again," (laughs) and you know, I had no no qualms about doing. I explained all the people that this isn't just a live straight gig where you know we're performing live for you, but we're also videoing, taping, and and recording. So it was it was very different, and the whole idea for doing it came up. Because uh, Lonnie Plaxico and George Colligan were doing a gig with Robbie Coltrane, um, in in Albuquerque, it was a jazz. It was a Western Arts Alliance conference, and they were doing a gig in, in conjunction with my band EB3. And Lonnie and George have played with, with my other band Mental Images for many years, and. When they saw all that same music that we were playing being performed by the trio, they, uh, especially Lonnie, was telling me how visual it was watching the bass line switch between people, and and I'm doing all my uh, looping and layering with the percussion and trombones and things like that. And he said it was just a very visual presentation, and. Uh, I wasn't even totally aware of that. So, but it made me think about it. So, I you know, I realized when you're just listening to it, you may sound like four, sometimes five people or sometimes more. But um when you see that there's three what you're seeing and hearing don't don't match up in your head. So, and I thought that was a nice angle to actually um really uh, demonstrate and to exploit to whatever degree I could to really enhance the whole experience for the listener.
0: One of the really interesting things that you've been doing of late is exploring some of the new media possibilities. You've been making podcasts, both audio and video, on your own, something that a number of people, like me <laughs> and us at Yamaha, have been trying, and, and your podcast, the Robin Eubanks Podcast, is is really, really cool. It gives people a look at what life on the road as a musician is like, whether it's buying leather pants in Argentina or... <laughs> Watching, uh, you know, samba dancers in Brazil, or <laughs> or life on the bus with Dave Holland. What's that experience been like?
1: It's been really nice to me. I mean, it's to me it was a no-brainer when I heard about this whole technology. They said they said podcast. I said, well, I said, what the hell is a podcast? And then I started doing some research and and finding out. And when I found out that it was basically like having your own radio show, and now almost you know a television show that you can put anything that you want on there and it's, it's not censored by the FCC, it's not, you know, under any kind of jurisdiction, you can do whatever you want to do and just put content up on the internet for people to check out and I saw it as a, a way of marketing and a way of, and a way of developing a fan base and in a way of letting, just letting people, who are, whoever was interested um, letting them into your circle and find out what you're doing and if they're interested they'll check it out and if they're not they won't and i'm um frankly i'm surprised that more musicians haven't taken advantage of it to me that was another situation like when i clipped the bell clipped the microphone onto the end of the bell where all these bells and whistles went off in my head i said wow this is like i mean perfect It was like whatever what i mean what more can you ask for is you just be able to put whatever you want, say anything you wanna say, and just upload it to the internet and have people check it out. And, you know, it's been really nice. It's been great experience for me, and um, I've been getting feedback from people from all over the world. We tour to even Brazil, and Sweden, and um, all through Europe, and different parts of the states. getting uh, messages from Australia. People are telling me that they're and checking out the podcast you know when we were in Scandinavia last year and someone told me two or three people came up and told me about the podcast in Brazil and so the latest podcast actually number 14 there's a guy Ricardo and that I met there and he was talking about the podcast and it's, it's, it's just amazing and to me that you know something so simple can reach so many people. I mean, I mean, you're literally uh, able to reach millions of people
0: conceivably around the world. So you set up expectations of now your audience. You can't take <laughs> a couple months off and, and yeah. say that I'm busy, I don't have time to do a podcast. Yeah, was, you've I, got was, expectations. There's a
1: three-month gap between podcast 13 and 14 because I was trying to get stuff together with the DVD and um, then February came around and the school semester started at Oberlin, so and I started touring again like crazy. So and I was getting emails from people asking me when the next one's coming out. And so I figured I had to do it. But I think it's it's working in a lot of different ways. Like now I'm able to help use it to promote the um, the DVD, the EB three thing, and talking about the dates that we're doing and 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 I think it's, it, I'm seeing other. Uh, benefits in that the This year oh for many many years. I've always been coming in second to Steve Terrey my good buddy in in, the, in all these polls and everything on the downbeat and jazz times poll and, and this year um, I won the jazz times poll and um, And I, I think that you know the readers poll not and, and I think that the podcasting is one of the things that that um, encourage people to Send write it write me in or however they do it. You feel like it gives you more visibility in yeah. what's a very
0: cluttered market yeah. where people's time is very valuable. This is a way they can connect with you.
1: Yeah, that's, that's totally. I completely agree, and uh, you know, and it's you know, there's you know things like YouTube and MySpace also um, do that, but everybody has access to that, and, and um, uh, the podcasting just really makes it a lot more personal and. And you can tailor the message to whatever you want, and, and people just feel a little more connected towards to you.
0: People that want to go check out your <coughs> podcast can just search for Robin Eubanks
1: on iTunes. Right. And find it, or go to your website Robinubanks.com. I have all the podcast links listed there, but you can subscribe on iTunes and other podcasts.
0: started in 1998 teaching at Oberlin a University in Ohio. been doing that almost for 10 years now. All right. Tell me more about that experience, <clears throat> being a, a college professor.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not what I was uh, looking to do. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I never even dreamed of doing that kind of thing, even though my, my mother's been an educator for many, many years. And uh, it was just, I remember when I was in college at Temple University, when I, where I started my college uh, studies anyway. And I wanted to be a performance, ma- well, performance major, but my mom said, well, you should get in, you know, education because you never know what's gonna happen with performance. So that was like the backup. You know, the parents always want you to fall, have something to fall back on, which is it's a noble thought. But uh, I took, I had a methods class there when I was a music ed major and it was, they were trying to tell you how to teach people on different instruments and I, it just turned me off so much <laughs> that I dropped the ed portion of the uh, degree and just was a performance major. But, uh, um, so it was, certainly wasn't something I was looking to do. But uh, they um, had an opening at Oberlin and uh, Wendell Logan, who was the department head the jazz department head at Oberlin uh was, contacted me and said that uh JJ J. Johnson who had done a residency at Oberlin for a semester uh had recommended me as the person that they should uh pursue to, to fulfill the jazz trombone chair and you know obviously I was honored that JJ J. would do that and uh So they they invited me out for an interview and I did a, while I was out there, I did a performance with the jazz band there and taught a couple of lessons and they observed and had an interview and and I guess things went pretty cool. And then uh, the dean called me up and she offered me a position and I turned it down because it wasn't enough bread and you know, Traveling all the way out there, and and the situation just wasn't the, that tempting to me. <laughs> and then she said, "Well, and since you turned this down, and this, and this," she said, that "I'm going to make you an offer that you can't refuse." And I got a little excited and I was, you know, basically said, if, you, "If I can't refuse it, then we don't have a problem." And it was a very nice situation, a nice package, but it, it showed me that you know. That uh, if I had said yes to the first offer, I never would have heard the second offer. So it was interesting in that regard. I learned something, but it's been great. I mean, I've been enjoying it. They've been uh, the faculty and um, administration at at Oberlin has been very cool with me and and encouraging me to continue basically doing what I'm doing. And I'm I'm part time there, but I'm also tenured faculty now. And so I'll probably be there for a long, long, long time. <laughs> and it's, you know, I'm able to make my own hours and everything, and it's it's been working for the last 10
0: years, so. When you started after the, the first year, did you think you'd be doing this for 10 years?
1: Uh, I had no idea. I didn't know if, if I would be into flying that much and traveling that much, or if they even want me there that much, but. It's it's been mutually acceptable for everybody. And, uh, you know, like I said, they're they're treating me very well and um, they fly me in and out wherever I'm at in the country, basically, and they have an apartment for me there and car service. So, you know, it's a little wear and tear just traveling, but it's only an hour flight. And when I used to live in Brooklyn, it would take me longer than that to get home from Manhattan sometimes. (laughs) Some people uh, commute two hours
0: from uh, upstate New York to Manhattan. Right. You just commute an hour, yeah, you know, which is, is from Newark to uh, yeah. you know, Oberlin. What have you learned in that 10 years? Because certainly that has an impact for the teacher as much as it has on the students. Yeah, that's
1: the thing that I was uh, most pleasantly surprised about was that uh, I was like, I was learning also because. A lot of things that I was instinctively doing, um, I had to uh, re-examine so I could explain and articulate them to the students. They would ask me questions about things that I was doing, and and I had to think about them and and find a way to um, impart, you know, the knowledge or whatever to them, and uh, and, and it made me just really re evaluate what exactly what I was, I was doing so it, it just made me uh, a lot more um, in touch with what I was instinctively doing and, and it made me uh, analyzing more and the second thing that's really been encouraging about it is that it, I've had some very good students over the years, and some of them are really pushing me and making me practice more and work on things. So it's, in that guard in that regard, it's been really great.
0: playing Yamaha trombones for what I think is pretty close to 15 years and over that course of time you've had a a couple of different models but you haven't been necessarily constantly refining your equipment yet playing Yamaha through
1: that whole time right it's been um, really nice I mean when I first started Yamaha I did an album Steve Teray and I who are very good friends he he, uh, we did a recording together called dedication <clears throat> and uh Steve was playing Yamaha and at that time JJ was playing Yamaha and I think Curtis Fuller was playing Yamaha so I said maybe it's be time for me to check out Yamaha <laughs> all my friends are doing it so and and I and I like the horn very much and uh then you uh, know, got the chance to work with a few, few of the designers that have, have um, passed through New York, and uh, Han, not, not Hans was one of the first ones. And then, but uh, Hiro um, was uh, what
0: was Hiro's last name. Hiro Imaoka. He was Ima, one of the R and D
1: staff. Yes. In New York. Yeah, Imaoka, my man. And uh, uh, he would uh, he had me put in a a silver lead pipe and it's hard for me to hear how things are when I'm playing because you know you're hearing it in your head and everything it's not the same as hearing it out in front of the horn and uh, he was like my ears so I would always try things out there I remember when I first the first Yamaha horn I had um, Hans put together and we walked in and tried there was all these bells sitting on the table and we found under the um heavy metal brasses this was it was a prototype then before it, you know, Yamaha even came out with that um model and uh he grabbed a bell and he soldered it to with put on a soldering iron and and just made the trombone while I'm sitting there and I was like wow I never this the trombone still has those same solder burns on it and everything I never Got it uh, lacquered or anything, so uh, it was it was just interesting to see a horn put together, you know, for me right in front of my eyes like that. And then uh, when Hiro came along, we we started experimenting with the lead pipes. Um, remember, JJ used to talk about lead pipes a lot, so I uh, got started checking out lead pipes, and uh, we found this solid silver one, and he said it changed the sound a lot, and. So I've been stuck with that, and then a few years ago at the IAJE, I tried some of the uh, Zeno models, and I really liked it a lot. <clears throat> then I went to Japan with uh, Michael Brecker, and I went to the uh, Ginza store, and uh, and tried it out, and and I really really liked the horns a lot. So then they sent me a. Uh, I think Hero came to New York and and took the specs of my original horn and tried to tr- and transfer them to this uh, Zeno model and I got the lead pipe and and you know like I said it was I knew it felt better and and seemed like it played better but the things the thing that uh, sold it for me more so was the comments of other people people I remember I. Did a gig one time and Dave Taylor, a great bass trombone player in New York, he said, "Did you change what we were playing the Mingus Big Band?" I think one day, and he said, well, did you change something? What happened? What did you do?" I was like, "I didn't do anything. <laughs> I got this lead pipe in there," and, and, and he's like, "Wow, it sounds different." And you know, and, and sometimes I was in the uh, recordings, and the engineers would comment on the sound, and so that that told me more than what I could actually tell with my own ears. So I, you know, outside of how it feels when I'm playing, I rely on other people's ears to give me feedback.
0: The horn you're playing right now is a pretty standard model, an open-wrap, large-bore. So, you know, same as classical players use, you're using it for jazz, for your own projects. It's pretty interesting that that one horn can do so many different things and fit a need for so many different people. Yeah, I think so.
1: I mean, I'm, I, you know, people, I know people, who have students and that people email me and tell me, well, I use this horn for classical and I use this horn for jazz and this mouthpiece for this, or this or that. and this for that. I use, I just use my Yamaha for everything, whether I'm playing lead or inside the section. I can play trigger notes on it, which I love playing in the trigger range and, For classical and for jazz, for whatever, you know, I I just it just seems to uh, respond for me and gives me what I need in in each circumstance. What do you drink when you go to Starbucks? Uh, I don't go to Starbucks. You don't drink coffee. (laughs) I don't drink coffee. (laughs) I don't drink uh, caffeine. I don't drink. uh, I don't eat meat. I don't. Eat refined sugar. I don't eat caffeine and no dairy. Wow. <laughs> so uh, you know I've been you know, I've been eating like this for about twenty over twenty years. So so you don't really know any other way than uh, no. You don't look
0: for the Starbucks when you get to every time. The rest of the band goes right to Starbucks. Oh, yeah. you
1: Chris <laughs> Chris Potter is a serious coffee <clears throat> coffee fiend, and then the big band, Mark Gross, and Dave's big band, Mark Gross is. I actually had a a bet. We were in uh, Europe, and I bet uh, Mark, what was it, just not much, just about three euro or something, which is like five dollars or something, that he couldn't go 24 hours without drinking coffee. And he said, yes, I can, yes, I can. (laughs) And we were in Italy where they have all this great espresso and cappuccino, I guess. I, I never had it, but people tell me it was good. And we ate a nice... Italian meal, which I love eating. Italy it's my favorite place to eat in the world. And we just got finished. This, and uh, I was teasing him. I was like, "Man, you're not gonna be able to do it now." And he said, "Yes, I am." He's, he's talking all loud, and and then he said, "Let's double it." Then I said, "All right, all right." So we we'll double double the bet. So then, like two minutes later, he comes whispering in my ear. He said bro, I can't do it. <laughs> don't tell anybody. He gave you the money. I said, why would you double the bet and then half an hour later you're going to give up? But I knew he wouldn't be able to do it. So Mark's, Mark's the biggest coffee fiend I know. So, uh, that, you know, I don't, I don't like I said, I don't drink coffee, no caffeine and none of that stuff. What are you listening to on your iPod right now? Wow. I have all kinds of stuff. Uh, Last night I was listening to. I have a playlist I did of classical adagios. So there's a lot of stuff, a lot of Bach and um, some Bartok and Beethoven adagios. And uh, and also I was listening to some D'Angelo and. but I you know, I have all kinds of stuff in there, a lot of Brazilian music, African music and the classic jazz stuff and a lot of my stuff which I'm 'cause I'm writing a lot right now or, or supposed to be writing a lot, way behind on lots of deadlines, but some hearing music and um, writing and composing. So I'm listening to a lot of my stuff just to refine it and compose, but I listen to a wide range of stuff. Some public enemy I like and Mahavishnu Orchestra and of course some JJ and Train, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis and and, you know, Larry Graham, Sly Stone, James Brown. So I would say it's a wide, wide, wide range of stuff, all the music that I like.
0: How could people who want to learn more about your career, your projects, your recordings, your itinerary, where can they go to find more information?
1: Uh, number one source would probably be my web, my main website, robinubanks.com, r-o-b-i-n-e-u-b-a-n-k-s.com, and you can use an email link. I get emails, tons of emails every day from people asking questions. There's, there's a discussion thread. There's a link on my website, but it's a discussion thread on Jazz Corner, which hosts my website. There's a speakeasy section and ask the musicians, and so people ask me questions on there, and um, I answer, and other people who are checking out the thread answer, and I have another page on MySpace, and and there's a few other portals and things that I'm trying to get stuff up happening on uh, MOG and Last.fm and all this kind of stuff and I'm still new to those pages but I'm going to start developing them so this you know lots lots of uh, ways to to get in touch with people nowadays which is great
0: and great places for people to really kind of see and experience you with your podcast Oh yeah, thanks. I forgot. <laughs> and my podcast—you <laughs> got to plug all seventeen yeah, different. Yeah, uh, so many things places. I forgot about it. But, but so often, you know, a musician is just a sound, their instrument. That's how they're known. People can
1: see, can see you and see what you do. Yeah. I mean, I remember like listening to those old albums, like little Miles albums, hearing him just say, "How's it, T.O.? or something like you know, just it just because you never heard the person's human voice. Uh, you just heard their instrument voice, and so you just want to. It helps you relate to them as a person, and to helps. And once you can relate to them as a person, more, it's it spins off into a deeper appreciation uh, for their music. So I, I think people hearing you talk is is really important, and or seeing you, and in situations where you're not just playing. And they see you and relate to you more as a person, as then just as a musician, who they like. And people that you know, watch what you do
0: and, you know, hopefully get a chance to interact with you, will see that you're just kind of who you are on camera, off camera, approachable, always ready to help, always ready to talk. And I, you know, I hope people listening to this will get a chance to check that out. Yeah, I mean, even
1: at gigs, I. I get, sometimes people email me and tell me they're going to the gig. I always say, come up and say hi afterwards. I mean, I'm always the first person back on stage when we play with Dave, because I, I like meeting people that I'm playing for. And, you know, I'm very happy to sign autographs and just talk and hang. People have taken me to go to dinner. And, you know, I don't, you know, if, uh, the play, all the places start to look the same after a while. You see, you go to the venue where you're playing, you go to the hotel. Then you're going to the airport or the bus to the next city, and, and all you see is venue, hotel, transportation venue, every day. And if you don't connect with people in the different locales, then you don't ever get a sense of where you are. And I like to interact with the people wherever I go because that really helps me understand where I am and gives me a, more, a deeper appreciation for what I'm doing. and, and having the opportunity to be in these different places because after a while everything looks the same <laughs> if you don't that's such a great attitude to have
0: and it's been great to have a chance to catch up with you here overlooking the beautiful ocean
1: oh yeah still you know, sunny yeah
0: waves, waves crashing in you're gonna head out do a little surfing before the gig uh <laughs> maybe some web surfing <laughs> go online check my email
1: <laughs> i appreciate your time all and, right uh, Kurt. A- But I definitely appreciate uh, everything Yamaha has done for me over the years, definitely. And I hope we have a long, fruitful relationship for years to come. That's great. Thanks again. All right.